Hello, everyone. I'm Ron Waxman, and with me, uh, Spencer King. We are in the last episode for 2020 for The King and I, and we're going to dedicate it to the legacy of Dr. Spencer B. King. Uh, and I actually take like three main topics out of many, probably, uh, that made a lot of impact on the field of interventional cardiology. Uh, the first is uh, bring address Grunzig. Second, um, the ABIM for interventional cardiology, uh, which we have to take and to renew it from time to time. And the third one is the Jack Intervention, the premier journal for interventional cardiologists. So welcome, Spencer. <laughs> Ron, so the legacy sounds a bit like I'm finished, but <laughs> maybe that's correct. But uh, yeah, these are some interesting stories. We go, I was digging through old things in my house, uh, old boxes, and I, uh, amazingly, I found an old uh, Snyder DG catheter. I should have brought it in here to show you that I, some of those I brought back from Zurich when we first, you know, started this this business. So anyway, my relationship with Andreas started uh, when he showed his animal experiment down in Miami Beach at the American Heart, and I was there and I had an exhibit and a, a man came by and said, "You got to see this thing. This is very unusual." Around the next uh, aisle. I went over there and there was Andreas with an ascot and uh, looking very dapper. And this, this exhibit of the dog experiment with the ligature tied around the dog artery and the balloon going in and breaking it. And the, the head pressure tracings and then some histology. And, uh, you know, I, I looked at this, I said, well, I, okay, I can understand what you're doing. You're, you're relieving this gradient just like we would for any obstruction. But, uh, you know, th th this dog coronary with a string tied around it is, is nothing like atherosclerosis. I said, this, this is never going to work. <laughs> that was my first encounter. And then within a year, uh, he had done some. And he reported his first cases the next year. And that, following that, the next summer, I invited him over to a meeting that we were having down on the coast of South Carolina. And, uh, you know, we kind of hit it off and whatnot. And then he asked me to come to Zurich and we did. And then in, in January of 80, at his meeting, he sat down with me and said uh, he was gonna leave uh, Zurich. And I said, where are you going? He said, maybe to a Cleveland Clinic. They've given me, among other places, they've offered me a, a place. And then I said, why are you going there? He said, well, it's the it's big, most famous place for heart surgery. I think it'd be a good place for angioplasty to develop. Uh, and I said, what do you want to do? He said, I want to guide it and uh, I want to be a professor. And so that's when I said to him, well, you can't be a professor at the Cleveland Clinic. They don't, they're not a medical school. They weren't at that time. So he was very taken back by that. And the next week he came to America, went to Snowmass, Colorado, went to the ski meeting Jack Vogel had. And I said, well, look, uh, while you're over, come, why don't you uh, consider coming by and visiting uh, in Atlanta? So he called me from Snowmass, said he figured out he could fly back to Zurich through Atlanta, came and stayed at my house for four days. And, and uh, I said, well, I gotta, now I got to go see Willis Hurst, the chief, and I got to tell him that uh, trying to recruit this guy. Well, Willis had had an experience. Uh, it turned out that Andreas is uh, chief the cardiology chief was a guy named Hans Peter Kreinbuehl. Kreinbuehl 
uh, was giving Andreas a hard time, didn't let him have the lab often enough and so forth, was jealous of him. But Kreinbuehl had trained partly at Grady Hospital here in Atlanta. And Willis knew him. And Willis had heard all these things that Andreas was a prima donna. So he told me, don't get involved with him. I said, excuse me, but he's in my house. I think I got, you got to meet him. So long story short, I took him over and met Willis and Willis was taken by him and uh, just was, uh, got behind the whole effort and was very helpful. And without Willis, of course, we could never have been able to pull it off to recruit him because he had no exams. He had no license. He had no visa. He had no, uh, nothing, you know, he was uh, just coming out of the blue and had to be declared a national treasure or something like that. And he didn't have a Georgia license. You know, all, all this had to be kind of created. Today, I have no idea we could do that, but back then uh, it was possible. Yeah, and that's uh, made a lot of impact on the field. Um, was he well received among uh, the surgeons? I mean, Emory also had a very strong surgery and uh, you would assume that being in the South, you'd be more conservative to take such a disruptive uh, concept of turning bypass surgery to... Well, we had a very we had a very vigorous surgical program. In fact, I was recruited back to Emory in 72 to start the cath labs to support the surgery program. And then we recruited Ellis Jones and Joe Craver and Robert Guyton and these guys, uh, top, top-notch surgeons. And that was part of the reason Andreas was willing to come. He met these people. In fact, that meeting down in South Carolina, some of them were there. And he kind of... Uh, you know, got to know surgeons and uh, they were supportive. So once he came and obviously I was supportive, we decided we'd you know, continue the courses. We put together closed circuit transmission. It was nothing like today. You had to, we had to run a fiber optic cable from the cath lab to the auditorium and another building. Uh, had large uh, projection screen TV had to put in high resolution, which was a, a thing back then. You know, it, it, TV was 528 raster lines or something. We had to tend uh, over a thousand to have these high quality images to do the to do the courses. So all that kind of stuff had to be put together. We had to buy cath labs that were, Andreas was insistent that it be a uh, uh, biplane isocentric uh, cath lab. There's only one in the world. It was, it was a French company, a CGR, uh, a company General Radiographique, and you had to have this thing. Well, it was a disaster. It never worked, you know, but, you know, we had a lot of things we had to get over to, to get through these early days. Angioplasty was hard enough, but the other things were tough as well. Yeah, so obviously uh, on those days, angioplasty was not regulated, but again, more and more people started to report about their cases and registries. And and you told me a lot that he was also an academician and was looking on the research aspect. Any um, words on his uh, academia and research as a professor or or just was looking to support all this stuff with, with data? Well, he, he wanted to find out about angioplasty. He was... He, he, he supported everything. First randomized trial done in, in interventional cardiology was one done by Andreas and, and uh, his second wife actually was the first author of the thing. It was uh, Coumadin versus uh, aspirin. And that was a, that was a randomized uh, trial. But he, yeah, the, the fellows uh, back then, you know, uh, were 
have churn out the abstracts. We'd have maximum number of abstracts at ACC and AHA every time. Um, and uh, it was a, it was a great, uh, great time. A lot of uh, interesting people. Skip Anderson, by the way, is trying to write all this up uh, during the five years Andreas was with us before he, before he got killed. Yeah, uh, amazing story. And, and we moved to fast forward. Um, this is after I've been completed fellowship. I remember the, the days that the people approach you to more regulate with the exams, the ABIM exams. Um, what actually was led to that? I mean, there was only, I think, only cardiology at that time. There was no sub other subspecialties. Uh, can, can you take us to those days that uh, prompt you to put up the exams for interventional cardiology with ABAM? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the preamble to that, of course, is that Andreas died and we had to continue these things along. And a lot of his research and, and great fellows came like Ron Waxman came. <laughs> we got to experiment on new things and new ideas and cure restenosis with brachytherapy and all these things are happening. Stents came along. And so by the time it was in the late 90s, uh, later 90s, uh, interventional cardiology, you know, was something that uh, needed uh, organized uh, support as a subspecialty. And uh, the college was interested in this, the Sky was interested in this. And so we, uh, we, we said, okay, well, you know, we'll, we'll go to a uh, American Board of Medical Specialists, see if they will approve it. In those days, it was not a, uh, it was not for a, uh, the board itself, independent board, but it was for a certificate of added qualification in cardiology. And it had it already been done by EP. So that was the, you know, they, they kind of uh, led the way. Uh, so when, when we wanted to do it, I, I was talking to Tom Ryan from uh, Boston University who, who had been on the, uh, the uh, ABMS. And he said, this is gonna be tough. He says, the board doesn't like to approve new subspecialists. Uh, I said, well, we, we need to, he said, well, I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll help. So I said, we're, we're gonna tee it up as a, a board for interventional cardiovascular medicine, everything that had to do with the heart and the blood vessels, including peripheral and everything. And uh, I said, even though we aren't really training everybody in all these things, maybe we should go for that. Uh, actually, my idea was not to go for that. My idea was to go for cardiology. I think, I think he's the one who told me, no, you should go for the whole ball of wax. So the reason is the radiologists are gonna go crazy about this. They're gonna oppose it. And uh, so if we go for everything, maybe we can compromise. So I did, I, I presented the whole uh, argument. The radiologist did go crazy. And so we said, okay, we give up. Uh, we'll give up the peripheral, you know, we'll just do the heart. They said, okay, fine. You know, so that was it. And as you know, gradually, you know, the peripheral became part of interventional cardiology. So that's kind of the strategy we had negotiating to get, get the whole thing done. Started the board in 99. Uh, initially, we had to figure out who could take it. Uh, nobody had been officially trained. There were many training programs. But the people out there doing it uh, needed to take the exam. And who could take the exam? So we arbitrarily set the uh, criteria. If you had done 500 cases lifetime, that was 
uh, would get you in. If you if you did uh, 150 cases a year for the last couple of years, that would get you in. And uh, then after a five-year period, after official uh, uh, board uh, training programs, uh, ACGM, ABIM programs were developed, uh, then uh, the only people who could take it after that were the people who had been through the official uh, ABIM training programs. Let me ask you, I mean, this is a question that comes now, I think, with the structural heart. Uh, obviously, now we change a little bit the configuration. We have the, the heart team. So the surgeons are involved, interventionalists are involved, other people are involved, disciplines. Um, so Sam actually did suggest that we'll do now exams for the structural part, like for TAVA or mitral, all LA closure, PFO closure, all of the above. Um, now, you do have something in between here. I mean, you have the surgical boards, you have the interventional cardiology boards. I mean, if, if they would come to, to you today with a, an advice, I mean, what would you, how would you fit this, the structural part that, that we are doing into this uh, uh, exam? And, and again, it's a little bit, a little bit better because I remember on those days when uh, you started the exam, there were a lot of people that they went through this, uh, they go to the course, they see one, then they do one with a proctor and the third one, they would say, I can teach you how to do it. That was basically the certification that they gave to themselves. Uh, but that was before the ABIM. Now we do have the interventional cardiologist. So wouldn't that be easier just to add a structural section there rather than to have something like completely new that both surgeon and interventional cardiologists and all the other people that in the heart team will have to take? What, what would your take on that? I, I think it's a mistake. I, I think uh, one of my concerns is that interventional cardiology is sort of dividing up now into the structural people. And, and, the, and the heart and the coronary people and the peripheral people. Uh, but as you think about other specialties, I mean, cardiac surgery, you know, all kinds of technologies came along, started with cardiac surgery. They, they you know, closed ASDs and they've treated uh, tetralogy of flow and they treated congenital. Then they began to, valves came along. So they, a lot of them started doing valves. Uh, transplant came along. People started doing transplant. Not everybody. Some people do. You didn't create a separate specialty for every little technique you do, uh, even though some people concentrate in those areas. And I think that's going to be extremely difficult in interventional cardiology to have, uh, you know, separate boards. I think it'll be, it'll be you, could, you could create an exam. You could create it from all kind of people could take it and say they're taking some kind of exam, uh, but I don't think you're going to develop another subspecialty within interventional cardiology. And in fact, I think if, we, if, we, if we're responding to the needs of the practitioner and the patients, uh, the people who do structural in many places also do coronary. Yep, possibly. So, uh, why, you know, do that? Uh, you know, at our place with, with, with Babileros and and uh, Adam Greenbaum and uh, this uh, group, uh, they're so into it, they do it you know, all the time. And I don't know if they ever do coronaries, but we got a lot of people do it. But I think if you go everywhere, you'll find a lot of structural people are uh, do both. And so I, I don't think you're gonna end up with a separate specialist. 
Yeah, and it's uh, not fair for those who doesn't want to do um, structural. So you're going to take the boards and then you're going to have a segment. Another day to add to that, it's becoming very complicated. Let, let's move to the last uh, segment of the legacy, uh, which again, I'm leaving you some other legacies in the future. We can, we're not ending this program today. Uh, and that's the journal. Um, so when you started the Journal of Interventional Cardiology, the Jack, uh, Jack Intervention, there were already journals in cardiology, and there was also, I think, CCI. But there was kind of, maybe you tell us, what was the need? I mean, how this was whole journal was created. Now it's a premier journal for interventional cardiology, probably the, the number one. Uh, but, but it has to start from somewhere. So how this was all started? Well, I was called a meeting, uh, uh, a com small committee, to think about new journals for ACC. Uh, the chairman of the publication committee was uh, uh, Gene Bronwald. And so we, uh, we met and we talked about it, talked about all kinds of things. Should we do EP? Should we do heart failure? Should we do intervention? Should we do, uh, you know, all kinds of things, imaging. So what we decided was uh, in this committee that uh, we all voted that uh, we should have imaging and intervention. And those should be the two journals that we would start so we uh, had a meetings, we, we decided to do that. Uh, I was on the committee uh, to, to select the editor, the really outstanding people applied for the job. Uh, we had the meeting, they all came and gave their proposals and for one reason or another, different members of the committee favored one or the other. Or they, 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 we settled on the imaging, we got uh, Jagat Narola to be the editor of imaging. And on intervention, uh, I had two fav <coughs> favorites of mine that I wanted. But uh, the me meeting ended and Brownwell adjourned the meeting without uh, selecting anybody. So a week later, I get a call from him and he says, we had a call without you. I said, oh, I'm sorry, sorry, I missed the call. He said, no, intentionally without you. <laughs> he said, the committee decided you should do it. I said, oh my God, that's uh, terrible because I, I, you know, I wasn't even uh, applying for it. So anyway, long story short, uh, they finally made me do it. I was reluctant and then I had to try to recruit the other people to join uh, intervention, which they did and uh, <clears throat> made it a great, a, a great publication with the help of uh, all, all my friends who agreed to, to take part in it. But it was, a, it was easy to do because there was a vacuum there was a need for papers on intervention that could not get uh, easily into uh, Jack or Cirque because of priority. There just not, wasn't enough room for them, but they were out there. And those were the places most of them went. If they didn't get in Jack and Cirque, they had to go to a lower impact uh, journal. And at that time, uh, C uh, CCI just didn't have a very good impact. And, and, and so, people were left with a decision, what do I do with my paper? So it, it, it was it was a need, it was out there, it was very much needed. And so it took off and uh, our, our impact the first time around was uh, five or something like that. So that was quite good and we got it up to 10, 10 eventually. Uh, but that was good, but uh, that, we had a great time with that. I thought it was a, a wonderful tenure. I was editor for 10 years uh, I, I was, uh, I, my last uh, article I think I wrote was uh, thanking everybody that it's 
credible the people who make this work and they're the authors who send the papers, the reviewers who do this unbelievable amount of, of uncompensated uh, work, the associate editors who really, you know, and so it, it was a wonderful team effort that you know a lot about that was uh, uh, tremendously rewarding. And uh, it was uh, good to get it off my shoulders eventually after my 10 year term. But at the same time, I miss it. And now I work for you, for heaven's sakes, and your journal. So this is, uh, I'm not through. I'm still hanging in there. Yeah, now this is a, just for those who don't know. So I, I actually missed your editorials, Jack Intervention. I mean, you always had the editorial page. And they were fun to read. I mean, they probably sometimes would be the best thing in the journal. So I actually would open the journal, see what Spencer is writing. And then, uh, and then, and then when you finish your tenure in the journal, I mean, they actually were gone. And so I said to uh, my friends here, you know, I, I really need to get those back. So how do I get those back? I'm going to ask Spencer to join us uh, as, as the editor at large at the CRM journal and to get the last word. And, and uh, so those are really terrific uh, editorials. Again, they're not necessarily related to any content that is published. Uh, topics are terrific and we're enjoying it and we're putting it also online. Um, so well, I've enjoyed it, but I'm gonna quit writing about COVID. <laughs> All of my predictions, uh, unfortunately about COVID, many of them have come true, much to my chagrin. So I'm gonna stop writing about COVID. Yeah, one thing that I would ask you, uh, when you look forward with all the digital news websites, uh, the fact that a lot of people being accused, they're not even reading papers, they're just reading the abstract and the conclusion. Um, what is your vision in terms of the future of the written and, and all the open journals and all this stuff? I mean, are we going to still look in journals like 10, 15 years from now? You know, I, I think a lot about this because we've we've gotten into this rapid news cycle where everybody wants to know everything right away, and there are a million people covering the news. You can see that every every minute, and sometimes I think that's uh, counterproductive to really digesting it. For instance, go back to COVID. So we've got two vaccines, right, that are that are coming out. Uh, everybody said, oh, great. It says 95, 94.5, 95% effective. What does that mean? Today, for the first time, we had a, had a, a, a teleconference here at Emory, and uh, they went through the studies carefully and the exact data that's in there in terms of, of what this meant, how many got infected, how many were seriously infected. So the ability to just get the news bang out there and the ability to have people reflect on it I think are two different things. So I think, yes, I think medical pub publishing is going to be important. I think that uh, having a place for researchers to, to be able to publish their work actually stimulates research. You gotta, you gotta, they gotta think they can get it into something that's going to be read. It's going to be consumed. It's going to have a, uh, some, some, uh, a value to them. Uh, at the same time, I think that uh, ref the, the process, and I complain about, okay, if I write something, something today, it's not going to come out in your journal for a couple of months. I complain about that. Same thing was true for Axel. I did 10 years of, not 10 years, I did two years of running Axel. 
Uh, I love those things because they would get into the nitty gritty of what people were presenting, but you didn't hear about them for two, you know, for several months after it was all over. So this fast food, this getting the immediate gratification of what happened. Okay, let's see, you know, what happened today, and then there's uh, what happens once people begin to debate it and digest it and and uh, maybe try to reproduce the results. So I think there's a place for both these things. I think journals will continue. I think they're it's going to be important uh, whether they're electronic, whether they're in print, how you get hold of them. Uh, uh, will will change. I, I still love the print to look at, but I admit that you know this this is going to go away at some point. The other the other debate in publishing is whether things are going to be you know a, a subscription model like we have for uh, New England Journal, like we have for Jack, uh, where you have to buy it. You either buy it through membership in a in an organization, or you buy it through. Uh, uh, just uh, subscribe to it, or whether everything is open access, whether the whether the researcher themselves are going to pay to publish their stuff, either pay personally or more likely the sponsor of the trials and everything will have to pay for it, and then it's immediately available. There's a there's a lot of pressure to do that, uh, a lot of pressure for everything to be open and accessible. Uh, so the open access is one thing. Uh, the the model of how you do it is another thing. This is going to impact publishing a great deal, and and the people who who, who get all the adverse advertising dollars in the college, by the way, is a, is the leader in, in getting those dollars. Are are hard pressed to go to straight open access, where now they got to tell the the author, okay. Where's your, here's how much it's going to cost you to publish it. You know, I, I worried at first about, you know, whether there's a conflict of interest, uh, you know, people buying their way in. I guess you can control that, <coughs> but, but uh, still, it's still, still a big thing for people to worry about. But regardless of how we get it out there, there needs to be a forum for uh, good research. It, it, it needs to be broad-based. Every journal does not have to be uh, uh, a 20, 15, 20 impact factor journal. Some of the best, some of the most interesting journals, and I think yours is among them, uh, publish things that people are really interested in hearing about. And uh, so what I call second tier journals, extremely valuable uh, and, and sometimes what, what's, what gets into even study, even trials that get into the journal stimulate thought much more than a trial that has to get in New England or Zurich or Jack or something just because it's very expensive. It's been, it's 10,000 patients. Some drug company has paid for all this. Uh, it's gonna be published in a big journal it's going to test stent A versus stent B. We all know from the outset that it makes absolutely no difference, but it's got to be published. So to me, that tri those trials, they're going to get in the top journal, but they're totally not interesting. Whereas <clears throat> whether other smaller trials, 
may take on a un, an unstudied subject and yet point to something that really needs to be looked into. So, I think yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I think there's a lot to discuss about this open versus non-open and who's going to pay and not going to pay. Uh, actually, this could be a good topic for us to start the next season, which is going to be in May. But that's to remind everybody, this is our last uh, session in our uh, 2020 season, uh, which was a great. Uh, we had multiple uh, stimulus um, meetings, uh, the King and I. Uh, we got a very good comments on that. I enjoyed it immensely. So I do want to repeat it, oh, not exactly the same topics, but other topics as we uh, come back <clears throat> sometimes in the spring for another uh, season of The King and I. And uh, I'd like to thank you, Spencer, for being a great sport. And um, we always had the after and before talks, which are also, they're not public, uh, but I get a lot out of, out of this. So personally, I'd like to thank you. Looking forward to continue to work with you on CRT, CRT online, and the CRM journals and, and other interactions. Um, it's, it's great being with you. Thank you, Spencer. Okay, let's all stay safe until we get uh, on to the other side of the vaccine. Or the vaccine, okay. Thank you.